So our reading today is John chapter 11, starting at verse 38 through to verse 57, which is on page 1078. John 11, starting at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Thank you very much, Ruth, for for reading that for us. It is frustrating, isn't it, Um, when... You kind of have a sense that there is more to something than you are quite getting hold of, and it's just eluding you. I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe you go to see um, go to see a film, and um, it's it's one of those slightly sort of deep films, and you, you have a sense that there's something deep going on here, but you haven't got a clue what it is. 
and you're just sort of annoyed because you can't quite get it. Uh, or maybe you're very brave and you read a bit of poetry, um, and then you think, well, this is lovely, but I really have not got a clue uh, quite what the poet is getting at. Or maybe it is just a conversation, and you come away from, from the conversation um, thinking, I don't think I quite got what they were getting at. Then you have a sense that they were trying to tell you something that you didn't grasp, and you know that you've left the conversation sort of slightly frustrated and left them frustrated too. So often there are things that are being said on the surface, um, and you can hear those. You can see the film, hear the words of the poem, hear the words of the conversation, but know that there is something else uh, that is going on under the surface and realize that you've not got that, you've missed that. John's Gospel is full of that kind of layers of meaning. He, He is a brilliant writer. And one of the things he does so brilliantly is, is, is weaves into his writing um, lots of deeper meanings. Uh, we've, we've seen it in the first half of the gospel with um, the seven signs uh, that, he, that he, he lays there, um, all of which point to, to things of great significance, but they're not always entirely obvious. So turning the water into wine in chapter 2 is about so much more than just rescuing an embarrassed bridegroom. Just as healing the paralytic man on the Sabbath in chapter 5. It's not, not just about correcting some religious misunderstandings. And then healing the blind man, giving him sight in chapter 9, has depths of meaning about vision and sight and understanding uh, that are tucked away in there. But John doesn't sort of lay those out for us clearly, just leaves them sort of tucked in under the surface, as it were. But every now and again, the importance of the tucked under the surface meaning is so great that it is as though John gets out his highlighter pen uh, and sort of yellows up the bit that we really have, must not miss. And that's very much what happens in chapter 11. At one level, what we learn in chapter 11 couldn't be more obvious. We learn why it is that Jesus died. But as John answers that question for us, what we're going to discover um, is that he answers it at lots of different levels. Um, I've got three that I want to try and pick out. A political level, a personal level, and a divine level. Just follow them through. Um, as we see this. So, so first, the, the political reason for Jesus' death. Um, you've been around the last couple of weeks, you'll, you'll remember the context, or, or maybe you know this chapter. Jesus has performed the most remarkable of signs. It's the, it's the climactic final uh, of the seven signs. The, the raising of a dead man from the grave. And, and, and not a... Not, not a just a bit dead man, but, a, but a, I mean, a really dead, dead man. I mean, he's as dead as dead could be. I mean, he's four days dead. He's decomposing dead. It is the most remarkable thing now that has taken place. For just with a word, Jesus calls him from the tomb and Lazarus comes. And we've been told that because Bethany, where this miracle takes place, is close to Jerusalem, and because Lazarus seems to come from a, a very well-known family, um, lots have come out of Jerusalem 
um, because they've heard of Lazarus' death. And so there are lots of people there in Bethany when the miracle takes place. Um, This is not a miracle that's done in a corner. It is seen. So pick it up in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. It's striking, isn't it, that there's no question in the minds of uh, the leaders of the Jewish people that these miracles are taking place. That's not an issue. They're they're not having a debate about whether he's really done it or not. Everyone knows that he's done it. It's clear and accepted that the miracles are happening. But what is striking is that in response to the miracles, a division occurs. Some believe, but some get pushed in a very different direction. Some hurry off to tell the Pharisees, what has taken place, and the Pharisees hurry to call a gathering of the Sanhedrin, that's the the ruling council uh, of the Jewish people. About 70 people uh, in attendance, and the discussion is heated. Think of it, if you like, as a sort of Brexit debate with knobs on. Because it's not just membership of the EU that is at stake at this point. No, the very future of the nation is at stake. The Romans, they say, will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now, why will that happen? What is it that they're fearing? Well, in their minds, they can see that if this Jesus goes on performing these remarkable miracles, if a groundswell of popular support begins to build around him, if it begins to look like a national uprising with with him at its head, well then, the delicate power balance that exists between them uh, and the Roman occupying forces, well, it'll be destabilized. That power sharing will come undone. And in response, the Romans will quell this uprising and very possibly overthrow the entire Jewish nation completely. Which is why Caiaphas, the high priest, thinks he knows exactly what's needed. Verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Here's the answer it's messy, it's ugly. It's a dirty business, but sometimes politicians need to take hard decisions, and this is such a time. Because here's the choice. Not my deal or no deal. No, no, no. But his death or the death of our entire nation. So, he says, it is better that one man die than that we let the whole nation perish. It's ugly, but somebody's got to take the hard decision. 
so there it is, a political drama where morally weak and frightened men make a murky political decision to take a man's life. That's why Jesus died. But of course, we have to push deeper. We have to see that that's not all that's going on here. So come to a second layer. This isn't just political, it's also personal. Notice carefully how Caiaphas captures this, how he states it. You know nothing, he says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Not better for our nation, not better for our people, but better for you. In fact, better for us. There is a horrible self-interest being played out here. Because what the Sanhedrin really can't abide is that power is going to be taken away from them. Their position lost, their status removed, their right to rule undone. But then you pause for a moment and you think, and you realize that that is always what happens when Jesus appears. Because when anybody... Whenever anybody is confronted by Christ, it is the dilemma that they face. It is the dilemma that we face. Because either he rules or we do. You can't have both. Unless you and I are willing to cede rule to him, well then our only alternative will be to put him to death to get rid of him. Now, of course, the, the way that we get rid of him is, is much more civilized than the root Caiaphas was suggesting. We perhaps do him to death with faint praise. Oh, that Jesus, he's a good man, a faithful teacher, a prophet, a great example. Because if that's all that Jesus is, then it means we can have him without having him in charge. If, if all that Jesus is to us is just a good example, then from time to time we can borrow from his example. If all that is is he's just a very good teacher, then every now and again we'll dip into his teaching and see what it's like. And we can do that just as it suits us. And effectively we've done him to death. Well, at least we've put to death the real Jesus, we've put to death the Jesus who is the king. We've put to death the Jesus who brought us into being. We've put to death the Jesus who is the Lord with the right to rule over our lives. He's gone. We are more like the Sanhedrin than we might like to think. We too have our political compromise, our spiritual power-sharing arrangement. And it's not God that we're sharing power with. No, it's a rather less savoury spiritual force that we have aligned ourselves with when we make that kind of bargain. And that's why when the true ruler shows up, we are faced with this choice. Cede power to him 
put him in charge or join the Sanhedrin and put him to death. So two layers of meaning already. The political meaning, the political reason for putting Jesus to death, and then something slightly deeper, something rather more personal about the unwillingness of the Sanhedrin to have Jesus take control, which has echoes for each of us. But we still haven't plumbed the depths uh, of what John is showing us is going on here. Because below the political and below the personal, we finally need to see that the reason, the cause for Jesus' death is a divine cause, a divine plan. The words Caiaphas speaks have a double meaning. He may have spoken them, but he spoke far more powerfully, far more penetratingly, far more deeply than he had imagined. And this is the point where the yellow highlighter comes out. And instead of leaving the meaning just hidden away, John flags it up for us because we mustn't miss it. See? Uh, Verse 51. Caiaphas, he says, in saying these words, Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. Words are prophetic, John says. He may have said them on one level, but another meaning was being stated altogether. He speaks better than he knows. Jesus will indeed die for the people. And it's a tiny word, but that word for there is hugely significant because in the original language, it's... It's the word that gets used in sacrificial speak. It's for in the sense of um, on behalf of, in the place of. So it's what you would find being said when a a scapegoat is sacrificed for the people. Scapegoat is given on behalf of, in place of the people. And John has chosen his words very, very carefully. And what it's flagging up to us is that we've arrived at the hinge point of the the whole gospel. That the turning point, for 11 chapters, we've been finding out a bit about who Jesus is and the signs have been pointing us to that. But from this point on, as we move into chapter 12, the focus will now become the move towards the cross, the momentum towards Jesus' death. Verse 53 tells us that that's the case. Because verse 53 says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So this hinge explains why. This hinge explains why it is Jesus has to die. It's a brilliant piece of writing. Let me put it like this. What chapter 11 shows us is that the only way that... Jesus can save the life of Lazarus is if he is prepared to give up life himself. The way that John makes that clear is is so cleverly constructed. 
Because remember, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you you remember how this plays out. You you remember when the the message comes to Jesus, and Jesus is up uh, probably somewhere northeast of of Lake Galilee, um, a long way away from Jerusalem. And the message comes to say that that Lazarus, your friend, is ill. Uh, And there's that two-day delay. And then Jesus declares his intention to go to his friend. And his disciples immediately respond, verse 8, but early in the chapter, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you're going back? They know straight away what this means. You go there, your life is in peril. But Jesus is determined, and Thomas, therefore, in verse 16, as they prepare to set out, says, let us go also that we may die with him. They get it. Jesus gets it too. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that the only way that he can go and raise Lazarus from the dead is if he is prepared to die at the hands of the Jewish rulers. This will be the trigger. This will be the thing that seals his death warrant. Once he has done this, the die is cast. They will be determined to put him to death. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. So Jesus has the choice. He he can choose. Stay up in Galilee, where it's safe, and Lazarus stays dead. Or, travel to Bethany, raise Lazarus from the dead, and you will die. Because of the events that will be set in train at that moment. That's his choice. And when he sets out, he knows what he's doing. He knows that he's choosing death that Lazarus can live. You getting the levels of meaning here? It is brilliant, isn't it? Because John is showing us what is at the heart of the Christian message. What is at the heart of what Jesus has come to do. It's not just about there and then and about Lazarus getting raised. It's about you and me and about us being given life instead of death. Because the same thing applies. Jesus didn't just choose to travel from Bethany, to travel from up near Galilee down to Bethany. That wasn't the only journey he chose to make. He also chose to make the journey from heaven to earth for exactly the same purpose. He knew precisely what that would mean. He knew that that too would involve his death. For just as Jesus couldn't save Lazarus from a physical death without himself physically dying, so he can't save you and I from a spiritual death without going to a spiritual death himself too. The cross was more than physical ruin. In that barbaric death, there was something still worse. There was spiritual ruin going on as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A punishment falls on him. That should have been on us. He is punished for the people, on behalf of the people. Better for you that one man die than a whole nation perish. That's why we get this sacrificial language. That's why Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus would not die just for the Jewish nation, but, we're told, his words speak for the scattered children of God. What Jesus does, he does for you, for me. 
Two things then, uh, as we finish. First, would you, would you see that in this sacrificial death, in this choice to give up his life, Jesus is showing us what love looks like. You glance back to verse 34. Um, Jesus says, where have, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But see how he loved him doesn't refer to his tears. Well, it does, but it refers to something still greater. Levels of meaning again. See how he loved him because he was willing to come and die in his place. He knew what was necessary. He knew what would happen when he came to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew what would happen when he came from heaven to earth for you and I. See how he loved us. That's the glory of God. Not that he has power to raise the dead, but that he is willing to set aside his power and go to a cross. And he calls you and I to live in imitation of him, to live with that character of self-giving, self-sacrificial love. But it's not easy. On Friday, um, in the midst of writing this talk, uh, which was already behind schedule, uh, and on a day when I had just discovered that there were some exams that I thought I could mark in a couple of weeks' time, and it turned out they were supposed to be done four days ago, so on a day that is not a great day, a phone call comes. And the phone call was from someone who's on the far side of Cambridge. And someone who's locked their keys in their car and says simply, I need rescuing. And I look down at the piece of paper in front of me and I've just written the aim sentence for my talk. Quite often I write a little aim sentence, which is the sort of, you know, the thing that I think I want people to get. It's most centrally. Uh, and my aim sentence reads, in praise and imitation of Christ, love sacrificially. I need rescuing, they said. Easy then. Off I go. And it's not so easy. See, is that love? thing is, cycling across Cambridge, I'm already thinking to myself, this will make a great sermon illustration. <laughs> and then I cycle on a little bit further, and I'm thinking to myself, this person will be really pleased with me, coming all this way to rescue them when they knew that I was busy. And already, I've turned this potentially loving thing into something that's all about me. It's all about what I'm going to get out of it. How I'm going to end up with appreciation. How I'm going to end up with the most excellent sermon illustration. So it's not easy, is it, to love well? Really, genuinely, to love sacrificially. Really to let go of your own self-interest in the character of your loving. We find it much easier to find ways of loving that are actually going to rebound back on us and lead to our credit, our honour, our praise. And that's why when we love, we have to do it vertically. 
you have to do it between you and the Lord. You have to be clear that the love that you are giving, demonstrating, displaying at that moment is done for him. Not for the person in front of you. Because so easily we will do it just for our own profit and benefit. But you see, the the great thing about loving for the Lord is that you can't get any profit out of it. Because he's already given you everything. There is no more to be earned from God. Because he has blessed you as fully as he possibly could. And anything you do doesn't earn you any more from God. It's just in response to what he has already given you. Having been loved sacrificially by Christ, we respond by loving sacrificially in imitation of him. And we do it for him. That's what being a Christian is. That's at the heart of Christian discipleship. Having had him die for you, you become someone ready to die to self and live for him instead. But we mustn't imagine that that is easy. So as we finish, as we prepare very appropriately today to be taking bread and wine, to be receiving this reminder to us uh, of the way that Jesus has loved us, I need to ask you, how's it going? How are you doing if you call yourself a Christian believer? How are you doing in the character of this sacrificial love? Uh, just last week, we, um, we saw a little bit, didn't we, of what it means for some of our church family to, to leave us uh, and move to this new congregation in Chesterton. We were a little bit more emotionally restrained uh, at 11.15. At 9.30, there were tears up front as people felt what it meant uh, to lose friendships and move away from this congregation. To do something costly for Christ. That's why there were tears. But it wouldn't be good, would it? If those of us staying here thought that different rules applied. As if those people moving to Chesterton, well, they're the ones making the sacrifices. Uh, and we, we're staying where it's comfortable. As if our discipleship were reasonable instead of radical. So how is it? What, what limits have you set on your living for Christ? In what, in what way is the break on in your discipleship? What are the boundaries of what you're prepared to do for Jesus? You ready to remove the limits? That's what Jesus is calling you and I to, isn't it? To live in imitation of him, the one who gave up everything for us. So how is it? How are the radical nature of discipleship being played out in relation to your plans for the way you spend a weekend. The holiday that you're sorting out in the summer. The midweek socialising that you do. The planning of your money and your budget. 
How's it going? Does Jesus drill down into the detail of your life and mine? Does he have his say over the time that you choose to go to bed and the time that you choose to get up? Is he down there in the detail of your life? Radical discipleship would say that he must be. If he's more than somebody that I borrow from every now and again, when I fancy a a little bit of advice or a little bit of encouragement, if he rules, then he needs to be in all of the detail of all of the life that we live. So is our discipleship safe? Do we, as it were, stay up somewhere near Galilee where there is no threat? Or do we travel with him to where there is risk and danger? It's worth it. There is something very beautiful here, isn't there? Something very, very beautiful about a Jesus who is willing to give up everything out of love for you and me. And there is something equally beautiful about learning to live a life in imitation of him. What level are you seeing the death of Jesus of this morning? Seeing the death of Jesus simply in terms of its political expediency? Are you seeing the death of Jesus just in terms of its personal threat? Are you seeing the death of Jesus in terms of all that he does for you, such that you're determined to live in imitation of him? I'll ask the music band to come back up to the front. I'm going to suggest that we're just quiet for a moment. In a moment, we're going to be taking bread and wine. We're going to be remembering what it is that Jesus has done for us and asking that God might let it affect us. So let's be quiet for a moment. I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing.